Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Amen. Well, how good it is to be able to come together and sing of the greatness of our God. There is no other reason than that we are here today other than to proclaim that our God is great. As we've just sung, it is His breath. He breathed the very breath of life into the first man that was created. It is His breath in our lungs. It is by His power that our hearts are even now beating. He is a good God. He is a great God. And we have the privilege of worshiping Him today and this morning, looking at how we are to come before God with adoration in our prayers. And so if you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 15, continuing to look at the Lord's Prayer. We have been working our way uh, for the past several months through the Sermon on the Mount, Contained here in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament in which we are given uh, an overview of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus models for his disciples how it is that we are to pray. And so we are taking our time, working our way through this because for the Christian Prayer ought to be one of the staples of our lives, just as much as breathing, as eating, as sleeping, as waking, just as much as everything else that we do throughout the day, prayer ought to be a staple of our lives. The Bible instructs us to pray without ceasing. And so for something that is so fundamental to who we are as Christians, we ought to know how to do it well. It deserves our attention. And Jesus here provides us with a framework for prayer. Now, often I think when it comes to the way that we pray, we can treat our prayers sometimes as sort of a checklist. We have a a certain number of things that we want to make sure that we mention whenever we go to the Lord in prayer. We have a certain number of things that we want to ask God for. We have people that are sick that we want to ask God to heal. We have people that need to be saved, that we want to ask God to transform their hearts. We have physical needs. We have financial needs. Sometimes as a church, we can even promote inadvertently the idea that prayer is nothing more than a checklist. Whenever we gather together on Wednesday nights, which is a very important time in the week where God's people come together and say, we're going to dedicate ourselves to a time of prayer together as a body of believers. What do we do? We Pass out the prayer list that contains a number of urgent and weighty matters that need, that require our prayer. But when we come to how Jesus prays here in this Lord's Prayer, we find that Jesus isn't simply going through a checklist of the things that he needs or the things that he wants God to do for him or to give him. Instead, this prayer contains a number of different components And each component is important and beneficial to our own prayer lives. 
In fact, this pattern that we see in the Lord's Prayer is consistent throughout all of Scripture. Yes, there are prayers and and most every prayer is going to contain petitions. Things that we ask God for or that we ask God to do. But they also contain much more than just that. And so if we want our prayer lives as Christians to be vibrant and effective, we need all the components, all the ingredients. Right? Most of us in here, I think, would say that we like a good cake or good brownies or something of that nature. This past Friday night, I made some brownies for our brotherhood, uh, our men's gathering. But we all know, Sonny liked them, that in order to end up with good brownies, you have to include all of the ingredients mixed in the right proportions, right? Now, when I made these brownies, I, what did I do? I went online and I said, Internet, tell me how to make brownies, right? Because I, I'm not a prolific brownie maker. And the Internet said, here's how you make brownies. You need eggs. I said, okay, eggs, got them, check. You know, you need butter, you need sugar, you need vanilla, you need a little salt, you need cocoa, you need all these things. And so I said, okay, let me get them and gather them up. And so I put them in in the right proportions and put them in the oven and here come brownies. It's a miracle, right? But if someone like me is capable of making brownies, I have to follow the recipe. I have to have all the right ingredients at the right proportions, You can't just pour a few cups of flour into a pan and shove it in the oven and hope to get brownies out. If you just put one ingredient in, you're not getting those nice, chocolatey, gooey, delicious things, right? And so, our prayer is similar. We can't just have one ingredient and expect a God-honoring, vibrant, effective prayer. So what are the ingredients of our prayers? Well, following the pattern of Jesus' prayer here in the Sermon on the Mount and other biblical prayers, Christians have long used the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, as the format for their prayers. Those letters stand for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, these four ingredients form the primary elements upon which most every biblical prayer is based. There's a fly that really likes my face this morning. But today we will begin where Jesus does and where most Christian prayers begin. And that is with the A of adoration. When we pray to God, we should spend time as Jesus does praising God for who he is. And what he has done. And so then this morning, if you're able, as we consider once more the Lord's Prayer, I'd ask that you stand together with me as we read Matthew chapter 6. Verses 9 through 15. There our Lord and Savior says to us, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer. God, this morning we are thankful for the opportunity to gather in prayer and gather in adoration because you are worthy of our praise. Great are you, Lord. And so as we have sung your praises, as we have adored you through our worship, I pray that now you would be adored in the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that your name would be hallowed, that it would be magnified, that it would be exalted as we consider your word so that as we go about our daily routines, as we go about our daily prayers, Lord, I pray that we would learn how to incorporate right adoration into our prayers. God, help us. Help us to recognize you for what you possess, who you are and where you are. So that our prayer lives might be improved upon. So that we might be the praying people that you call us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we begin considering how to incorporate adoration of God into our prayers, I actually want to begin at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Now, as we look at the ending, we can recognize what God possesses. Recognize what God possesses. Some of you may have noticed that as we have read through this, as I read the text, it seems like I've perhaps skipped a part, like maybe there's a part missing. You may be familiar with the typical arrangement of the Lord's Prayer that contains this doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be wondering, Pastor, why aren't you reading that part? Why aren't you saying that part? But if you're reading along in a newer translation of the Bible, the ESV, for example, what I'm using, the New American Standard Version, the NIV, you'll see that none of those translations contain that particular phrase. Whereas if you're reading this morning from the King James Version or the New King James Version, those translations do contain that phrase. So so what's going on? Are some of these translations removing part of the Word of God? Are they altering what Jesus said? Well, ultimately, not at all. This is an instance where we have actually gained a more accurate picture of what Jesus actually said in the Sermon on the Mount over the past several hundred years. This is a little counterintuitive for us. So I want to provide you, I want to get in the weeds a little bit with some some biblical translation issues that I think will actually help us and hopefully give us more confidence in the knowledge of what Jesus says here. You see, when the King James Version was translated in 1611. The the translators depended at that time roughly on about 20 to 25 manuscripts that they had access to of the New Testament in the original languages. But the oldest of those manuscripts that they used at that time only dated around to about the 500s AD or about 500 years after Jesus lived and died. And most of those manuscripts, the majority of them, came from around the 1200s. However, Since the time in which the King James Version was translated, we have discovered tens of thousands more manuscripts. Think just 50 or 60 years ago, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the treasure trove of manuscripts, particularly of the Old Testament, that that provided. But in the same way, 
There's been other discoveries that have helped us gain a more accurate picture of what the original texts of the New Testament actually said. We now have access, as I said, to tens of thousands of these early manuscripts that were written and copied and distributed throughout the ancient world in Greek, Coptic, Aramaic, other languages. Some of these date now all the way back to the first century. So what we have is a much more accurate picture of what Matthew actually wrote, what Jesus actually said in the Sermon on the Mount. We have much better textual evidence, earlier textual evidence, and none of the earliest copies of Matthew that we found contain this phrase, this doxology. And so somewhere along the way, we know with a degree of certainty, someone added this phrase. They decided that the Lord's Prayer sounded a little incomplete. It needed a little something else at the end. So they copied this in and that got copied into another copy and that got copied into another copy and it was transmitted along. There's a lot more that we could say just about Bible transmission and translation and and how we get the translations of the Bible that you have sitting in your lap right now. But suffice it to say, we can have absolute confidence Right now in in what Jesus says, one of the glorious things about these discoveries is that these tens of thousands of manuscripts all agree in what the text of the Bible actually says. So we actually have more confidence, greater confidence that what we're reading today is the words of Jesus when he taught the Lord's Prayer translated for us into English. Ultimately, this doxology that we're familiar with For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It probably was not spoken by Jesus on this day when he taught the prayer. But that does not mean that it is untrue or even that it is unbiblical. In fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 verses 10 and 11, we have recorded for us a similar prayer offered by King David. And there David prays, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. These are very similar to the words that have been added to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. So this doxology is in fact biblical. It contains biblical ideas and it's modeled for us in different prayers elsewhere in the Bible. And so when we pray, we can be confident that we can rejoice and delight in the power and attributes and glory of God that He possesses. We can praise God For the power and the kingdom that he possesses. This is a good and proper way for us to adore God in our prayers. And it works to shape the other things that we pray about. If we include a dose of this in our prayers. If we include this ingredient. This adoration of who God is. The attributes that he possesses. If we start from a position of happy humility when we pray. Allowing our view of God to dictate what we pray for and how we pray, then we will find 
that our prayers become more biblical and more God-centered. If we remind ourselves that, that God alone possesses the power and authority and the kingdom, that it all belongs to Him, that He possesses it all, then that allows us more freedom to ask of Him the things that we need because we know that it's within His power to grant it. And so I think as we begin to adore God for who He is, what He possesses, we will find that we pray in a more God-honoring way. Another way that we can (coughs) incorporate, though, adoration into our prayers is the way that Jesus actually does begin this prayer and that is to recognize recognize who God is recognize who God is now we already spent last Sunday talking about the two words our father right and and I was very proud this morning that uh, uh, I came in and I told Philip and Alicia as they were uh, practicing that, that I managed to preach last Sunday's sermon in in 38 minutes and, and that was doing pretty good for me And they reminded me that I only preached on two words. So the average there doesn't actually work out in my favor. But but we we talked about God being our Father last week. And so we've already talked about this idea somewhat of who God is. But I want to add just one more element to that. When Jesus tells us that God is our Father, He is reminding us of God's closeness to us. Or to use a big 50 cent theological word that you can maybe impress your friends with sometime. His eminence. His eminence. That word simply means that God is very close to us. He dwells with us. And what a glorious thought this is. We could not go to God. We could not gain access to God. There was no means within our disposal to get to Him. And so what does He do? He comes to us. He sends us His Son so that we could have God with us. And then when Jesus departed and went to heaven, He sent us the Holy Spirit to live with each and every believer. So that you can, as you address God as your Father in your prayer, do so knowing that just as your Father is someone that hopefully you were or are now close to, God is even closer. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within every believer Even now. And so God is close to us. He is imminent. He is with His people. And so for this reason, God ought to be praised. But Jesus then adds another element reminding us who God is. He adds the line, Hallowed be your name. Now, we don't typically recognize or or use that kind of language. Most people don't talk about hallowing something. But it's simply a request for God's name to be highly honored or considered holy among his people. Jesus is asking that God himself would see to it that we recognize him for who he is. Jesus is praying that God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, would would work to make sure that his people honor his name. That his name be properly praised. Now, this is a pretty consistent theme throughout the Bible, that the name of God would be praised. And that's why I think Jesus makes it his very first request, the very first thing that Jesus asks for in his prayers, that the name of God would be hallowed. 
He establishes this as his priority in prayer by making it the very first thing he asks for. Al Mohler in his book on the Lord's Prayer points us to a number of Old Testament references indicating that God's chief concern is the glory and praise of His own name. And so we see this is, this is something that, that we find throughout Scripture. I'm just going to run through a few of these very quickly. Psalm 2511 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now, that, that adds a, a whole new wrinkle to our prayers, a good wrinkle, right? Because whenever we confess our sins and we ask forgiveness, we can appeal to the praise of God's name. We can say, God, for your name's sake, not just for my good, but for your name's sake, pardon my guilt. <coughs> In Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, there God himself says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here God is revealing to His people that it is for His name's sake that He has acted on their behalf, either in putting them through the trials of affliction or in rescuing them. Whether it is through their suffering or through their joy and blessing, God is acting for His own name's sake. Ezekiel 20.14, once more God Himself says, but I acted for the sake of My name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. And then later in Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. God's telling His people, Listen, it's not for your sake that I'm about to rescue you. It's for the sake of my own name. Now, if we allow ourselves to be honest for just a minute, I suspect that maybe some of us in here are hearing those scriptures being read, maybe for the first time, and we're thinking, that sounds a little conceited. And if we're talking about a person, another human being, then absolutely it would be. But with God... This is not conceded at all. By the way, this will help you with your discussion questions. Okay, this is one of them after church. But in fact, if God's priority, if God's chief concern was anything other than his own glory and the praise of his own name, it would not be good news for us. Now, this idea has been fully fleshed out throughout the ages by a number of Great thinkers. Perhaps the, the greatest was the American pastor Jonathan Edwards. And he, he taught that, that we should find this to be true and that we should actually expect this to be the case that God's chief concern is actually not us, but the glory of His own name. Because it is more virtuous, it is better for us to love most that which is best. Now, 
We all know this instinctively to be true. And let me explain how we know this. Consider, for example, a a soldier who fights because he loves money. He wants to get rich. What do we call that person? Call them a mercenary, right? Somebody who goes and fights for money. And and we kind of look down on those folks. As a matter of fact, I uh, I saw a news report that just yesterday... The, the government of the United States designated as a criminal organization a group of mercenaries that is fighting for Russia right now in their war against Ukraine. And it spoke about the ruthlessness of these guns for hire, these soldiers for hire. But if a soldier fights because he loves his country, what do we call that person? We call them a patriot, a hero, right? Because we consider the love of country much more virtuous than the love of money. Let's take another example. What if a man marries a woman because he loves physical intimacy? We would probably not think very highly of that man. I would not counsel them to get married. I would encourage that woman to get away from him, right? If that's the reason why he's marrying her. But if a man loves his bride unconditionally, we would consider that a beautiful thing. That's a, a fairy tale. He's a prince charming. Right? So we must ask ourselves, we recognize in these situations, people can act, do the same actions, but for different reasons. It's the motivation behind it, what they love. And we are judging what they love either to be superior or inferior. And so it is more noble to love that which is superior. So what is the best thing that a person can love? What is the most superior thing for a person to love? Well, ultimately the love of a person's nation is good. But it's not the most high good. Love for another person, even romantic love, is a good thing. But it is not the uppermost good. The highest and best thing that we can love is God Himself. Because He is the highest and best thing. But if God is the highest and best thing, the greatest thing that we ourselves can love and prioritize, we have to ask ourselves then, well, what is the highest and best thing for God Himself to love? It must be Himself. He must prioritize His own name, His own glory above all else. If God made us His priority, for example, what would He be doing? He would be making his chief concern something less than, something less significant than himself. To love a lesser thing is not virtuous. Therefore, we need to understand God created us for his glory. He saved us for his glory. He will raise us up to endless life for his glory. But here's where it becomes good news for us. You see, if you start with your focus on the highest priority, then oftentimes the lesser thing is accomplished as well. So we may call the soldier who fights only for money a mercenary. But the soldier who fights because he loves his country also gets to make money. right? Because he loves the the highest thing first, he also gets the lesser thing. So you have the double benefit of fighting for a good and noble cause and also enjoying the benefits. (coughs) In the same way, 
The man who marries for sex, we would consider a hedonist. But the man who marries out of unconditional love for his wife also gets to enjoy sexual intimacy within that marriage. And I would argue that it's an intimacy of a much more enjoyable nature because his priorities are right. Because he loves her unconditionally first. And so when you love the greater thing, the more noble thing, you also will get the lesser thing thrown in. But if you love the lesser most, if you make that priority, often you'll get neither. So, hopefully we're, we're still following. I know this is getting pretty deep here, but we need to see that God's priority is His glory. But by prioritizing His glory, His name, just as Scripture says, He is then able to act out of His love for us because His love for us Results in what? His glory. He gets both. He gets both. He gets us along with His glory. It's to our benefit that He makes His glory, His name, His chief priority. His love for us results in His glory. His creation of us results in His glory. His redemption of us results in His glory. And so it is in our best interest that God chiefly pursue His own glory. And that His name be hallowed before anything else. So in our prayers, we need to make it a point to recognize who God is. To adore Him. To praise His great name. But Jesus not only tells us here and calls us to recognize who God is in offering praise. He also helps us to recognize where He is. He tells us that He is our Father Where? In heaven. He is our Father in heaven. So with this, I'm going to teach you another big fancy theological word. It goes with the other one. We've already talked about God's eminence, His closeness to us. But the fact that God is in heaven reveals to us that He is also at the same time transcendent. He is different from us. He is unlike us. He is far superior to us. His dwelling place is in heaven and we have no earthly means to approach Him. He is high above us and unlike us. He is greater and mightier than we could ever possibly begin to fathom. Now, both of these truths, the fact that God is close to us and the fact that He is different from us, are both vitally important when we pray. That's why from the outset, in His adoration of the Father... Jesus reminds us who He is and where He is. Because if God were not near to us, if He were not a Father to us, then we would find Him cold and uncaring. He would be distant, unable to meet our needs, unable to hear us. But, at the same time, if God were not transcendent, if He were not different from us, if He were not utterly unlike us, If He were not the God who dwelled in heaven in inapproachable light, He would not be powerful enough to meet our needs, to answer our prayers. The Bible paints this clear picture of God throughout its Scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're told, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven and above, uh, in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. There is no one like God at all. There is no one that you can compare 
to your Father who is in heaven. Deuteronomy 33, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in His majesty. There is no one like God who is able to help you because there is no one like God who dwells in the heavens. Psalm 97 verse 9 says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And then Psalm 115, 1-3. I love this passage because this actually combines both of the ideas we've talked about today. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And so we have here both ideas. God, to your name be the glory. And God, you are in the heavens. You do all that you please. Hallowed be the name of the Father in heaven. So what then should we do in light of this revelation of the transcendent God? Well, as we pray, we should approach Him humbly yet confidently. Humbly because He is the God of the heavens. The God that is utterly unlike us. He is God and we are not. Whatever the best thought that you can muster about God is, it will fall short. We cannot comprehend Him. He is not like us at all because we are created and He is the Creator. Some may think that God is to be feared in the same way that a minnow may fear a whale. But you see, the minnow is still like the whale. It's just itty bitty bitty. It's like the whale, just smaller. God isn't like us, just bigger. He is utterly unlike us. He is transcendent. Paul Washer, a prominent preacher and missionary, once asked the question, which is more like God? An archangel in all of its glory or a bacteria under the seat of your toilet? Now, we would instinctively say the angel. right? Of course the angel is more like God. But the correct answer is neither. Neither is more like God. Yes, the angel is far more majestic when you consider the spectrum of created things. If you took all the created things in the world and you lined them up and here on this end you've got the little bacteria and you know over there you've also got mosquitoes. They're pretty awful. And then you know, you've got the, the big elephants and the majestic whales over here. And then on the far end of that spectrum you've got the archangels in heaven. But guess what? All of those things, everything on that spectrum, it is created. It is made by God. None of those things are like Him because He made them all. God is off the spectrum. And so He is, in some ways, incomprehensible by those on the spectrum. (coughs) The only way we are able to know anything about God is if He Himself reveals it to us. As He has done in His Word. In His Word, He tells us, this is who I am. This is what I am like. And so when we come to Him in prayer, we come to Him acknowledging how it is that He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. We approach this magnificent God in happy humility, with adoration, recognizing what He possesses, 
Recognizing who he is and recognizing where he is. Our God is worthy then of adoration simply because he is God. And as we begin to incorporate this important component into our prayers, we will find that our prayers are filled with new life, with new energy and excitement because we are reminding ourselves, even as we pray, of who God is. Prayers without adoration are kind of like brownies without sugar. They're bitter. We're not reminding ourselves of who it is that we're praying to. They can become tedious, a task. Just something that we've got to check off our list because we know that we have to. Kind of like taking vitamins. But when we begin to incorporate into our prayers the adoration of this wonderful God that we have the privilege of coming to, then we begin to begin our prayers with a reminder that we are praying to a God who is close to us, who loves us. We are praying to a God that is unlike us, that is capable of answering our prayers, that is good. Our prayers are no longer then based on our hope of a wish being fulfilled, but in the almighty sovereign of the universe and in his character. So put this into practice. Begin to acknowledge in your prayers what God possesses, who he is and where he is. And as you do, you will start to see your confidence in your own prayers grow. For some of us, though, we need to begin simply with knowing who God is. You see, you cannot adore someone that you do not know. Right? You you may be intrigued by them. You may be interested in them. But you can't adore them until you get to know them. Maybe you've wondered why God doesn't hear or answer your prayers. Maybe you've wondered why God feels so distant. Why He doesn't feel very fatherly to you. Maybe you need to back up and ask yourself first. Do I even know Him? Do I even know Him? Do I have a relationship with Him? Do I adore Him? Because when you start to ask those questions, you may realize that you've never met the God that we've talked about today. The God that we've described today may be far different than your understanding of who God is. You don't recognize this God because you've always thought of God as something less than what He actually is. Today, I would love to introduce you to this God, the God of the Bible, the God who exists in the heavens, who is high and exalted, who has sent His Son to have a relationship with you so that you might be able to call Him Father. I'd like to introduce you to this God that is transcendent, that is different, that is unique, that is more majestic than we can ever comprehend. And at the same time, loves us so much for His own glory that He sent His Son to die so that we could have a relationship with Him. I want you to know this God so that you can talk to Him, so that you can pray to Him. Jesus wanted that too. That's why He taught us how to pray in this way. And so then, if you need to know this God, if you need to be introduced to Him, then in just a moment, I would invite you to come and and talk to me up front and just let me know that, that you would like to have that relationship. And I'll happily walk you through the Scriptures 
and show you how it is that you can know this incredible, inconceivable God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much today for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us about who you are, about what you have done, about what you possess. Lord, indeed, yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. And you have chosen out of your goodness, out of your grace, out of the love for your own glory to share it with us. And in doing so, Lord, your glory is not diminished. It is magnified. Lord, how marvelous you are. May we as your people continue to seek the exalting of your name. May your name be hallowed among your people. May we recognize you for who you are. May we adore you in our prayers and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.